Welcome to the Eco Interviews, where we amplify the voices of eco warriors from across the world. My name is Fiona Martin. I started the Eco Interviews as a way to speak to people who are involved in helping tackle the climate crisis we find ourselves in. I don't know about you, but the enormity of the problem can be overwhelming. What can one person do? But as I read and explored different facets of the problem, time and time again, I came across people who are making a positive change. From farmers to parents, business owners to academics, we are not a single isolated person. All of our efforts together add up to something amazing. So I want to share these stories as a chance to educate myself and my listeners and create a global community of people who value nature and humans as part of it. What can you do to help? Start by subscribing to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or directly on the website at ecointerviews.com. That's www.eco-interviews.com. Leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. That really helps us reach more people. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with your friends. Join us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. If you're so inclined, we have a Patreon account set up at patreon.com forward slash eco interviews. I hope you find these conversations as interesting as I do. If you have any suggestions for topics or speakers, please reach out to us on social media. Your support is appreciated. We're all in this together, so let's figure it out together. In this episode, we're speaking with Amanda Borlotti, an amateur triathlete, vegan, and cat lover living in Abu Dhabi. Great. Welcome, Amanda. We're with Amanda Borlotti for the Eco Interviews. Amanda is based in Abu Dhabi. How are you doing today, Amanda? I'm great. Thanks, Fiona. Thanks for inviting me on. Well, I'm excited to speak to you. Um, Amanda and I know each other because we're both triathletes and we have the same coach. So Amanda is an amateur triathlete and a passionate vegan. Amanda is a cat lover who helps out with local rescue groups and this love of animals was her driver for turning vegan three years ago. Becoming vegan opened her eyes to environmental issues, and she hopes the rise in veganism will help protect the future of our planet. So I'm super excited to speak to you, um, to talk to you about um, your veganism, your animal activism, how that relates into environmentalism, and then also just get a little insight about what's going on in Abu Dhabi, because that's not an area of the world that I'm particularly um, familiar with. So let's start with... um, Tell us about yourself, Amanda, and how you ended up in Abu Dhabi. Um, well, I'm from London originally, London in England. Um, I'm an executive assistant in the, the finance industry. Um, when I graduated, I was just very lucky that my company transferred me to work in Dubai, and I was there for four years before I went back to the UK. And then just another job opportunity came up here in Abu Dhabi, and having previously worked in Dubai and being familiar with this part of the world, I just thought, I'd come back for a short stint and I've actually been here for almost 10 years now. So I guess I call this home at the moment. Yeah, there's a large expat population there, is there not? Yes, yes, huge. Yeah, lots of us over here. So Nice. Well, tell us about your journey to veganism. I'm very interested to hear about this. You and I, um, without even knowing each other, I think went vegan about the same time. So I'd be interested yes, to hear about that journey. Yeah. Yes, it's three years for me now, just coming up to three years next month. Um, for me, the main driver w- w- was um, animals. I'm, like you said in my introduction, I'm a huge cat lover. Um, I've got four of them roaming around the apartment right now. And I help out with local rescue charities because there's a, a huge problem here with kind of stray, street, sorry, stray cats and also dumped pets and everything. So it's something I'm very, very passionate about and 
just one day I just kind of woke up to the idea that on one hand I was helping to save these lovely beautiful creatures and then on the other hand I was eating a, a different kind of creature on my plate and I just I just couldn't balance it up and I mean I actually went vegan overnight and it's not something that everybody can do but I just thought no that's it I'm not going to save one and eat another and and just turn vegan overnight yeah and so um my vegan journey almost started from a almost a performance aspect in terms of athletics, but um, very much an environmental one. And then it moved into the animal aspect. So with animals being your entrance, did did going vegan open your eyes to other aspects of the lifestyle? Absolutely. Um, animals was my main driver, but then I, I quickly learned that, that health was a, a huge um, part of it for me. I mean, I just felt so much healthier once I turned vegan, you know, in time, obviously. Um, I lost a lot of weight. I became better at, at triathlon. My, all my times improved. Um, so that was a huge side effect for me, you know, and obviously a very, um, very pleasurable side effect. And then as I delved more into veganism and watched more of the documentaries, I realized what a huge impact being vegan actually has on, on the environment. Um, and so that's something I've become become much more passionate about because of being vegan. Mm-hmm. And something we were talking about before we were recording, um, I know some of the interviews I've had on here before have been academics and researchers that are really, yeah. you know, 100% surrounded by this sort of ecological movement. And I am not uh, an academic in this field at all. So it's been very interesting speaking to those people. And you yourself mentioned that you're not necessarily like a an academic and ecological issues, but I wanted to get you on here because um, it, I want to talk to everyday people who are making these sort of small changes to make the climate crisis more accessible. Do you? How do you feel about that? I, I agree one hundred percent. I mean, it's wonderful hearing from all the experts, from all the researchers, you know, the professors in the world. Um, but sometimes it's just really nice just to talk to somebody normal, your neighbor or your work colleague, somebody who's gone vegan or um, is making changes in their lifestyle to reduce their plastic use and, and just learning from people and seeing what other people are doing, what normal people are doing and, and seeing what we as a normal individual can do to, to help the situation. Mm-hmm. And a little bit of background for anyone who doesn't understand the connection between veganism and the environmental movement. I know I was, uh, I came to know about it through the documentary Cowspiracy. That kind of yeah. said it for me. Um, my husband is very aware of the ecological crisis that we're facing, and it seems unattainable for me to do anything because we focus on things like transportation and where I live, you have to have a car. There's there's no public transport, and so you know, me not driving means I don't have an income or able to go food shopping even. And so it makes, when I watched Cowspiracy and they said that the transportation um, and emissions issues around uh, factory farming animals is even greater than the transportation issue and just simply not eating meat is uh, a big positive way to take the demand out of it. That felt some, like something tangible for me. Did you have a similar experience or did you watch Cowspiracy? What did you think yeah. of that? Yeah, I did. Yeah, amazing documentary. And I'd encourage everybody everybody to watch it. Um, I agree with you. I had no idea that the agriculture, the animal agriculture industry was actually doing more harm to the environment than, than um, you know, flying on a plane on holiday or driving our car every day. And I don't think many people do. I think that's that's the issue. Not many people realize that. 
you know, mm-hmm. how much la- how much land is used, how much water is used, how much um, CO2 the animals produce. It, it's just a real life eye opener once you do realize these things. Yeah, certainly. And uh, I, it was much easier for me to control what was on my plate than to, like I said, uh, stop driving my car, which yeah. is still very difficult. There's a, uh, being a cycling advocate, one day I hope to not have to drive a car, but we're not there yet. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and and it's the same in and same in this part of the world. Um, everybody has big cars here. Everyone's got the big four by fours. Um, there's very limited public transport. It's something that that the government are working on, but at the moment it's not very easy just to get on a bus or something. So everybody has cars, and something I do feel guilty about. But like you, it's just an, an essential. Um, but at least it's good to know I'm doing something else good in not eating the animals and contributing in that way. Mm-hmm. So yeah, tell us a little bit about um, Abu Dhabi and the United Arab Emirates. I was speaking to someone recently and the natural assumption is that it's an oil and gas driven economy, but I wanted to look that up first. And the statistics I saw that in 2018, the oil and gas sector contributed to 26% of the overall GDP. So um, certainly not 100%, certainly not over 50%. It's a large sector, but uh, can you speak to, to what's driving their economy? And then how does that play into if they have environmental policy or not? Yeah, I mean, I think 20 years ago, or possibly even longer, 30 years ago, the oil and gas um, definitely played a, a bigger part of, of the GDP over here. Um, but obviously, I think they're, they're very aware that one day the, the oil will run out, and they're also um, focusing, because of that, sorry, they're focusing much, much more on tourism. They're trying to make that their main industry at the moment, um, particularly in Dubai, where there's just so many hotels, and um, Dubai, I think, is the second um, busiest airport in the world. Um, so that's really quite incredible. Um, as far as the oil and gas goes, it, it obviously is hugely harmful to the environment. It produces a ridiculous amount of, of CO2. Um, but here in the UAE, I can't speak for the rest of the region. I, you know, I don't know much about what's going on in places like Saudi. But certainly here, um, the UAE government have got a long-term strategy in place to try and to reduce all the damage that the, the oil is actually doing. Um, excuse me, just for looking at my notes, but that I was just looking at, at their strategy. It's a long-term strategy that uh, goes, looks ahead to 2050, so that they're really looking ahead, but they're um, trying to in- control the emissions, they're reducing the flare of the, um, the unwanted natural gas, because that produces a huge amount. They're trying to increase the energy efficiency, they're committing to um, renewable energy sources, they're trying to increase the, the clean energy. We've just um, got a huge new nuclear power plant that's just about to start working now. Um, and they're trying to um, increase the amount of solar because we obviously get a huge amount of sun here, so that's definitely something that they can, they can focus on. So, I mean, it's all long-term goals, but at least they are aware of the situation and, and they're actually putting plans in place to try and do something about it. Yeah. I mean, you know, let's celebrate the wins, certainly, and and not stick in their head in the sand in regards to that. And uh, I do commend them as well for trying to diversify their economy and not just be reliant on gas and oil, for sure. But but the trouble is the tourism also brings its own set of uh, issues, you know, more more planes. It's that's more more trouble as well. And, And the amount of cars that are on the road here due to all the tourists and um, huge amount of waste I think goes with tourism in this part of the world because we have the fanciest hotels imaginable and I think the things like food waste that goes on in these hotels must just be incredible mm. oh my goodness mm. yeah mm. Um, 
I was going to say, oh, and you just visited uh, mangroves and the most recent interview yes. I did was talking about carbon se- sequestration and mangroves. So tell us about that visit yes. to the uh, mangrove uh, park. It, it's beautiful. I mean, um, we do have a, a very unique landscape here because obviously we have, have the desert, which um, there are parts where there's beautiful um, sand dunes, but for the most it is quite a sort of desolate, desolate desert. Um, but we're also surrounded by the sea and lots of little islands and the mangroves are, are just beautiful. And it's really not, that's another initiative, you see, that's really nice to know that they're actually trying to protect these places now. Because once upon a time, um, they weren't too aware of the damage they were doing. And so they just, you know, plonk buildings, hotels, shopping malls, everything on this land and, you know, reclaim the land. Um, but I think now that they're realising the importance of places like this, so they are protecting it and they, they've opened up several um you know, protected areas. There's the mangroves where I went the other day. There's also an area um, in the desert where we have flamingos, and they're, they're protecting the flamingos there. Um, lots of lots of nice initiatives going on with, with the, the wildlife. There's the, um, one of our islands has turtles that come in, and that they've got a whole rehabilitation program going there, where they they bring the, the turtles into nest and then release them out into the ocean. Nice. Yeah. The, um, protecting mangroves is, is really good. The conversation I had with Ollie Marais in episode five, um, mangroves have been especially threatened by tourism because they are on beautiful coastal areas, tropical seas. And so the, you know, the way of doing things before was just to hack them down and build hotels on them. And it's only now that we're realizing that, uh, you know, these, the earth has natural carbon sequestration, tools you know there's this um Mm -hmm. i think richard branson and then maybe even the prince of wales is trying to fund technology to suck carbon out of the air which all sounds quite Mm -hmm. sci-fi and exciting but in reality we have all the tools to be able to sequester carbon already and it's just crazy to spend millions on a technology that's a question mark when the earth has the technology waiting for us so need to just open our eyes and try and protect what we can right and protect it Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Because I, I think I think in the past here in Abu Dhabi, so much of the mangroves probably has been destroyed. But um, at least they're doing something to protect the rest of it now. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So um, triathlon, exciting topic. I think that we both like to talk about. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I know. For I know for for me, um, triathlon has been a way for me to be more out in nature. You know, I get to run outside and um, something that that I think is kind of unique to triathlon is the open water swimming aspect. So, you know, I've yes. swam in rivers and oceans and lakes that if I was just a pool swimmer, I might not get out there and do that. So I find it connects me with nature. I find it, um, you know, I notice the birds and the deer around me. I also notice the extreme weather changes that we're going through because we have a seasonal sport. So I distinctly remember, you know, the 2016 triathlon season being incredibly hot. I mean, running, the half marathon in a 70.3 and it's 102 degrees Fahrenheit outside. It was just crazy. And then we find out two years later that 2016 was the hottest year on record. And Mm. I just think no surprise there. So do you experience the same thing? Can you notice those changes and have you found the sport to connect you with nature in the same way? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we are so lucky here that we have wonderful outdoor facilities. I mean, we've got the beach, we've got several beaches, you know, right on our doorstep. And it's amazing to be able to just go and swim in the ocean and, you know, put your feet in the sand. And we have um, man-made purpose-built cycle tracks, you know, safe from the cars and everything. They're both in the desert. And it's just wonderful just to cycle in the 
nice solitude with just the, the sand around you really really lovely and it, it does connect you with with nature so much and you're just seeing the birds and um there's a cycle track in in dubai where you actually see oryx and camels and, it, and it's just wonderful um yeah really really love being out in the nature and, and like you say it does make you very aware of the weather we obviously have quite extreme weather over here crazy hot summers um but we've all noticed that in probably in the past 10 years that we get a lot colder winters than we used to we get a lot more rain and storms i mean this year alone we've we've had several bad storms sorry my cat's just it's okay (laughs) um and i think 20 years ago that was really unheard of you maybe got rain once a year if that so definitely uh noticeable the climate change for sure do they talk about that at all in the weather uh, is something I've noticed. No, there's something I've oh, noticed really? here, like only very recently have they started saying this flooding that we're getting can be connected to climate change, but literally it's yeah. only happened in the past two years. We even had, uh, this is speculation on my part, but we had a local weatherman who used to really make that connection and he got fired. <laughs> so I wonder why. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But they don't talk about it there at all. It's just like, oh, this is unusual. Mm. Even in summer, um, you know, if, if it gets extremely hot over over 50 degrees, um, it's actually, that's actually meant to be a case for, for workers to be sent home and everything. So, of course, it never officially reaches over 50 degrees, but we all see that it does in our cars and things. So, yeah, they, they don't like to talk about anything like that. And certainly if we have bad storms, they just say it was a freak one-off storm. You know, they don't link the storms together to see that there's a trend or anything. Yeah, I wonder how many like once in a millennia weather events we can have. We had a once in a millennia flood here in October 2015. And every Uh single time now we're getting similar not to the extent that we had, but um, actually we had a storm system come through and the water from upstream on our local river this weekend was the highest it's ever been since Hurricane Hugo, which was 1989. And it was one of the most destructive hurricanes. At that time, it was the most destructive hurricane in the United States in terms of damage. And I was like, and I distinctly remember it from my childhood driving over the bridge this weekend. I, I was like, okay, it's officially as high as I remember as a kid, which is insane. Um, wow. So, you know, they say yeah. once in a millennia yet, we continue to see these things happening. I know. And it's like everything that's going on in Australia. I listened to a bit of your your, your latest podcast um, about the fires and everything. And now they're having crazy torrential rain, aren't they? And flooding. It's just just mad what's going on in the world. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, what type of, what type of wildlife is uh, does your desert landscape get? Camels, you mentioned. Camels, you yes. Um, we get oryx. um what else do we get? Flamingos. Uh, in, in the mangroves, there's lots of kind of, uh, I think there's stalks. Um, I mean, that, to be honest, there's not a huge amount of wildlife here just because of, of because it is so dry and, and hot most of the time. Um, we have a huge amount of um, flora, but I think a lot of that might be um, artificially planted and created. Um, there's a huge um, watering system that goes on here because I don't think many things would actually survive if it weren't for that. But the camels are pretty amazing to see when you're out cycling. Mm-hmm. And you, you've mentioned that you're a cat lover. We saw one of your cats make an appearance. Yes, and, um, sorry for that. 
No, I'll take it. My dog's over here sleeping. So, um, but tell us about the work you do with the cat rescue. And it sounds like there seems to be an issue with street cats in Abu Dhabi. Yeah, there's a huge, huge issue with street cats. So um, myself and various other, other individuals, there's no official government um, policy in place on it. So it's down to just individuals forming in groups and, and uh, the main goal is to just TNR, trap, neuter and release, just to try and keep the numbers down and, and stop the, the crazy overpopulation and then just uh, look after the, one, the ones once you have neutered them and just try and keep them healthy. Um, I mean, in many ways, that it's good to have some cats out there. It keeps you know, the rats and the birds down. Um, so, so it's not an issue. It's just when they, that they get crazy out of control and, and then they spread diseases and things. So, um, And we also just have a problem with... with uh, because it's a, a very transient society, lots of expats, a lot of people when they leave, they just dump the cats and um, it's left to people like myself and the other rescue people to, to sort of pick them up and try and find them home. So, Yeah, and it seems like you've done an amazing job with that just from what I've seen on social media, you know, rescuing cats, <laughs> yes. rehabbing them, getting them on airplanes, getting yeah. them to Germany and getting them to yeah. England. So amazing. We- yeah, we do often fly them overseas. There seems to be see more, seem to be more demand for for them um, in places like England and Germany than there are here. So yeah, it's funny where you have a larger stray population. We have uh, similar issues with stray dogs. It's just part oh, of the yeah. culture. Yeah, it's part of the culture. You have hunting dogs, and then there's just dogs uh, running loose. My um, both of our dogs are rescue dogs. One of my dog I rescued uh, from the street. She was just running around. But um, similarly, uh, up north, they don't have the same issues, maybe due to weather, but also because it's just policy. Um, and so we send our strays up to New England. And uh, my street uh, my street dog had eight puppies when I first got her, and they all uh, went up to the Hamptons uh, in New York. So from like street uh, dog uh, to like fancy Hampton nights. <laughs> Our puppies Probably did well. To death. Mm-hmm. They love them, <laughs> oh, and so they can say they rescued dogs, and I'm happy that they went somewhere because that was a lot of puppies. Oh. <laughs> Good, love a happy ending. <laughs> yeah. All right, Amanda. So, tell us, besides uh, going vegan, what sort of things do you do in your day to day life to um, be mindful of the planet? Um, I'm trying to make lots of small changes. Really, there's there's so many things that we can do but I think trying to do them all at once just becomes overwhelming so um, obviously one of the first things I did was try and reduce the amount of plastic in my life you know the simple things like reusable bottles reusable coffee flasks um, taking my own bags to the supermarket things like that and any any plastic that you unfortunately have to have recycling it um, at last here in Abu Dhabi, they're actually um, starting to encourage recycling, which is great for a long time, but there weren't even any recycling facilities. Um, things like trying to save energy. We obviously have to have our um, AC on a lot in this part of the world, but trying not to have it too cold, um, turning it up a degree, probably the opposite to what you guys have to do with your um, your heating. You probably try and keep the heating down and we try and keep the, the, the AC down. Mm-hmm. Um Water, obviously trying to save water, turning off the tap when you um, clean your teeth, showering rather than baths, um, all, all the little things. And also trying to 
replace all my household cleaning products with more environmentally friendly products as well as being cruelty free all my beauty products now are environmentally friendly and cruelty free and it all takes time because you obviously can't go out and replace things like that overnight it's expensive but just trying to do what I can each day and um, also just trying to encourage other people to I think um, education is so important with things like this I think some people just aren't aware that when they throw away their their piece of plastic that, that where that bit of plastic is actually going to end up so um just trying to, to share everything as well with people mm-hmm. and do you find it easy or difficult to find these sort of uh more conscious products i know it's been a journey for me in the past few years to replace things like uh like sponges for for washing the dishes and stuff like that and it, yeah. it can be it's, it's, it's hit or miss as to whether it's easy or difficult to find uh, yeah. more sustainable products. How have you found that? Same here. I mean, it, things are slowly starting to come into the supermarkets over here. Um, we're quite lucky that we have some um, quite a few English uh, supermarket chains here, and, and they're much better at having the product, the own brand products, which which are becoming more popular in places like the UK. Um, Things that I can't get here, I tend to, to shop online for places like Amazon and things, which obviously comes with its own set of problems when it's being flown in from, you know, from America or the UK or something. But it's, it's just trying to do what you can, really. Um, but I really, really hate to buy something that isn't environmentally friendly or, or, or um, cruelty free. It just, I, I can't bring myself to do it anymore, to be honest. Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely a, a mind a shift for sure. So what advice, what advice would you give someone who's just now waking up to the climate crisis and finding maybe this overwhelming? What would you tell someone to do? Um, start small, start small. Don't try and make massive changes overnight. Um, whether it's if they want to, um, you know, become vegan eventually. I mean, I did go vegan overnight, but I think I'm a rare case. I think it's much better if people start into it slowly. Um, you know, try being vegan one day a week or just, you know, having one meal a day where there's no meat on the table and um, just make, make small changes and, and ask people for help, you know, seek advice from other vegans. Um, I do honestly think that, that eating less meat, um, being vegetarian, being vegan, they're the things that really are going to help this planet in the long run. Um, it, it's, I think it's going to be the single most effective thing. So if somebody can reduce their meat I think that's just a wonderful thing and then the same the same kind of attitude to um all the other things we were just talking about you know recycling um reusing voiding food waste all those kind of things just start small just start implementing one change you know start start with just taking a reusable coffee flask and a you know reusable water and then see how that goes and then start adding in other things I think it just becomes very overwhelming if you try and do everything all at once and then that leads to failure Certainly, you can um, yeah set yourself like any sort of habit change, uh, small steps, set yourself mm-hmm. up for success instead of setting yourself up for failure. And um, yeah. just a reminder to listeners in regards to environmentalism and veganism, and the idea is that you know factory farmed animals right now are we're clearing vast amounts of land to to have them on the land, but we're also clearing vast amount of land and forest, including the rainforest in the Amazon, to grow feed for animals. So the idea behind going vegan is that you would reduce the demand so there's no longer a need to um, you know, to cut down clear-cut forests for feed and animals, 
Um, there is a big regenerative agriculture movement where they try and do pasture farming. And, um, you know, I'm learning more about that uh, as to how that's ecologically better. I don't think I'll go back to eating meat. I don't really miss meat. I don't miss dairy. But um, there certainly are two two lines of thought on on that. Uh, the cruelty, I still think killing an animal is cruel for food when we don't yeah. need it. Um, but it must be mentioned, I know there's some very ethical farmers out there who are doing regenerative practices where the livestock have good lives and they also are a part of the ecology and help make carbon sinks as well. Um, so, you know, if anyone's interested in, in veganism, certainly you can reach out to us and you can find Amanda. Amanda, where can people find you online if they do want to reach out to you? Um, on in, Instagram is probably my, my best bet, vegan, vegan, tri, vegan underscore try girl. That's right. Vegan try girl is, is good. And <laughs> it's super fun to watch, to follow you and your journey to see the cat rescue is, is fun. I love seeing those little guys. You rescued a, a gray <laughs> Scottish cat. Uh, I don't know. The Scottish world, the Scottish world with the, the cute little ears. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you get to race in some amazing places. I know you've done Western Australia recently and uh, I think you've raced in Brazil as well. Correct. Yeah, that was amazing. So give Amanda a follow at vegan underscore try girl for sure. And um, Amanda, I really appreciate your time with us today. Oh, it's been a pleasure to talk to you, Fiona. Thanks for having me on. All right. Well, we'll be in touch and um, make sure to follow Amanda and uh, follow this podcast wherever you can. Thanks, Fiona. Okay. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Bye.